As you're taking your seats, kids, you guys are dismissed to your classes. And you can open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 1 through 5. Let's look forward in prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you so much that we do not have to wonder if your ways are good, that your word tells us that they are good. As we look into your word today and as we wrestle with that question that Satan asks, is God really good? Does he really have what is best for you? Help us by the time we're done here to know that answer strongly and may we be able to uh, live that out as well. Help us now to understand even more deeply the truths of what Genesis is telling us here about evil, about the temptations, and all the other things that are here. Just give us our eyes that may they may be open to see the truth and reality. In your name we pray. Amen. It doesn't matter what your worldview is. It doesn't matter where you stand theologically, where you stand um, in the religion of this world, there is one thing that is sure and that is very clear, and that is, without a doubt, we all have the same questions. The same questions are out there. Like, giving an example of one of the questions is, how did we get here? Why is there something rather than nothing? All right? There's other questions that are out there of, how did we get evil in this world? What is right? What is wrong? We all have the same questions. And one of the interesting answers to all of them is what, how you answer these questions defines what you believe. And so for a Christian, we have answers to these. Now, you may not like how deep the answer goes, and there may be certain questions we don't have answers to because the Word of God does not describe it for us, but the Christian worldview has answers. And let's be, if we're honest, many times we don't like the answer because it impacts the way we live. And so what is the temptation then is to seek other answers that are more self-appeasing to us rather than the answer of what God said. And so when it comes to the idea of even evil, which we're about ready to talk about today, is evil just a social construct? And to help you out what social construct means is society just gets together and says, this is wrong. And that sounds great until... You sit there and say, well, how does society determine what is right and what is wrong? All right, is, it the, is morality just personal? Everybody has their own morality. All right, well, that works for about 30 seconds until I take out my gun and shoot you and say what I just did is not wrong. And you're like, yeah, but he's dead. You know, is that right or wrong, right? Or is it just the majority that determines what is right and what is wrong? And we know that falls apart. Just get three people in a room and convince the other person that it's okay to steal his wallet. And so now you have two to one, and we just take his money, and away we go. We're living in a world where determining right and wrong is whoever is in the media and has the longest and loudest voice determines what is right and wrong. Even if there's a minority opinion on it, if they say it's the majority, we can be so swept away by thinking that the minority is controlling the majority. And the question is, is there a standard that we can look at and go to to determine what is right and what is wrong? Not only that, we have to ask the question, well, why is there even evil in the world? How did it come about? 
Well, God's Word tells us. And what we see going on right now are the same things that we're going to see in the garden, are the same things where even the battle right now is raging. This idea is, is it wrong? Is it right? How do we determine right from wrong? And all of these things are battling right now. And I came across a quote by Martin Luther. This is not Martin Luther King. This is Martin Luther the Reformer, Martin Luther, where he says, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at utmost attacking at the moment, he goes on to say, I am not actually confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. To be steady on all the battlefields besides that mere point where Satan's attacking is mere flight and disgrace if we flinch at that point. And so the issues that we're dealing with, you may say, why did we go through the book of Genesis and why are we taking our time going through it? Because I pray that by the time we get through it, you will see that this is where the battle is raging. This is where the battle rages in each one of your lives and we cannot just quickly move through it. Because sadly, if we're not careful, if we do not attack where Satan is attacking in our own lives... We can become so quickly sounding biblical without actually, as Martin Luther said, you can be versed on everything, but if you're not versed on where Satan is attacking, you know nothing. And we're flinching at the moment. I'll give you an example. It would be wrong then if for the church here, and I would even say this sounds great, but this would be the wrong thing to do if you were to say we're going to do a Bible conference and the title of the Bible conference is going to be this. Do you have a guardian angel? All right, that may be a really interesting biblical question. But is that where the battle is raging right now in our world? And the answer to that, hopefully, you would go is no. All right? And we can, if you really are interested in guardian angels, we can talk about that after we've discussed your marriage, the sin that you're not addressing, and everything else in your own life. Then we'll talk about if you have a guardian angel or not. But guess what we could probably pack this out with? It's a bunch of people who don't want to deal with the issue, but really would like to know, do we have guardian angels or do we not? Because that's really interesting, but it doesn't address any of our actual issues here in life, which was interesting when I taught Bible doctrine. You know, the most questions we had from the kids when we went through was on demons and angels. But let's not talk about gossip or anything else in that world because we all love this topic because it sounds biblical, but we're not dealing with the issue. And sadly then, if we're not careful, it's very interesting that many churches are attempted to ignore the hot topic issues. Because that's kind of divisive. Well, so we'll just ignore it. Well, I don't think we can ignore them because that's where the battle rages and we must understand where the battle is. So the battle is right in front of us in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Let's read the text. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for the Lord knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The title of today's message is, Did God Really Say? So what we're going to see here in verse 1, we're going to be introduced in 2. This individual, this serpent, called the crafty serpent. 
Now, this idea of craftiness, just to make sure you're clear, Caleb and I were going back and forth. This is not someone who's artistic, all right? You, you, know, you don't need to keep one eye out for someone who's an artist, all right? This is not the craftiness that we're talking about here. This idea of craftiness is the idea of deceitful. And we, we think this through and you go, okay, so the serpent was more craftier than any other beast of the field the Lord had made. What's going on there? All right, so let's just walk through this text. Now, a little side note, and I'm going to strongly encourage you, come September when we start Sunday school classes. Again, we are going to be walking through many of the attacks on the book of Genesis. And this whole topic is attacked massively. This whole idea that there's a serpent that talks to someone and all these other things like this are attacked by incredibly liberal theologians that are going to say this is all just a mythical story. So if it's a mythical story, that would mean evil is mythical. That would mean everything else is a myth. And now mankind is determining what is the myth, not actually the Word of God being the true Word of God. And this, if you were to go to any school, and I would even say sadly even conservative Christian schools, you will be taught... Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 11, are all just a fairy tale. All right, the problem with that is God's Word does not record it for us as a fairy tale. All right, and we're going to actually have to deal with it, God really say, because when you send our sons and daughters off to even biblical universities anymore, sadly, and we have not prepared them to understand that Genesis 1 through 11 has been just attacked galore for year after year after year after year, and they're getting really, really good. I mean, you can package up a lie and make it sound really, really nice. And then what happens then is these kids come home to parents, and I'm I'm not talking about the teenager who thinks their parents are ignorant. I'm talking about sometimes when parents have no idea the attacks on the book of Genesis, and you have a kid come home and go, do you realize that people don't believe that the flood was blah, blah, blah? And you're going, well, I don't know. That's just what Pastor Tim told me, and I don't have any response back. And the professor says your parents are a bunch of ignorant bump, you know, idiots hold, clinging to their gun in religion, right? And all you do is just fit right into that because we don't and are not studiers of the Word of God, and we come just, this is the ball gets rolling here. And so we're going to walk through this text here. But before we do that, let's just walk through what it says. The serpent was more craftier than any other of the beasts of the field that God had made. So God made animals of the beasts of the field, and with them come certain characteristics, or you would even call it a character trait. Birds, and I'll just, let's just play this out. In the middle of winter, you can be blowing a gazillion miles an hour, and you have a bird outside your window chirping, all right? Birds carry with it a joyful attitude. It's just the way God has made them. You can hear the sound of the bird, and we could all go, that has joy to it. Dogs, by their nature, can be very loyal animals that can be very protective of their masters. Think of canine units and all these other things that the dogs are literally willing to die for their master. Cats are just pure evil, and we won't go into that. All right, but when you get to even other animals that are going on, like the animals of the beast of burden, mules and donkeys are known to be stubborn. I mean, we even use it as a derogatory term to call someone one of those names, all right, because they're by nature stubborn. And now we get to this one where the snake, and you can see this in our world around us, are crafty creatures. They hide, and one of their best ways to attack is by hiding, by slithering on the ground and moving. These are character traits of animals, but they are not moral creatures. I want to make sure you're clear on this. When a lion stalks his prey and surprises his prey, he is not sinning, all right? As in, like, he made a wrong moral judgment to eat the antelope, all right? These are... Animals with characteristics we can understand, but they are not moral beings, all right? 
But now, so we have to say, so what's going on here? Because obviously the snake is talking in a way that has moral issues to it. All right, we just read it. So what's happening? Well, it's clear here that the serpent is the manifestation of Satan. The serpent here is literally the one who is speaking here is Satan himself. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. This is the beauty of the Word of God that we do not have to wonder what's going on here. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we see two, two individuals described here, the woman and the dragon. The dragon in this is Satan in the end times here. Or Satan will manifest himself as a dragon. And in Revelation 12, 9, notice what it says. And the great dragon, that's Satan, was thrown down, that ancient serpent. The ancient serpent they're referring back to is a serpent in the garden who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and thus the angels were thrown down with him. We will talk about this serpent of old, this ancient serpent. This is the one that's talking about here, the great dragon. And he's going to say, and the writer here, John, is saying, just like the ancient serpent back in the garden is the deceiver of the whole world. And what is Satan going to do? He's going to deceive. So here's a couple of things that we know that must have taken place by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3. That Satan has already rebelled against God. He was cast from heaven and has now worked to destroy the work of God. And I gave you two passages of Scripture there. You can look at those up on your own about the fall of Satan. But I just want to state to you the fact that by the time we get to Genesis 3 here, Satan has rebelled against God. Now, the last thing I want to look at before we dive into what is happening here. So Eve, or the woman here, is actually talking to the serpent. And you may go, is this a normal thing that happens? Are we all going to go see us, Lewis Narnia, where we're just waiting for that animal eventually one day and the, the story of the horse and his boy to finally talk to me and all those other things like that? Or what's going on here? There's one other passage of Scripture we can look at that gives us an indication of this. This is in Numbers chapter 22, verses 26 through 31, where Balaam is riding his donkey on his way to do an evil thing that God had not called him to do, to rebel, and an angel stands in the way, and that beast of burden, being rebellious in his nature, is not going to go through where that angel is standing, and so Balaam starts beating the animal, and the animal, eventually, God touches his mouth so he can open up, and basically turns to Balaam and is like, why are you beating? me. And Balaam basically goes, because you're a stubborn old beast and won't go forward. Then God opens his eyes, he sees the angel, and the rest of the story you can read on your own. Now the question that gets asked all the time by people who, when they're reading through this, why did Eve, not when she heard the serpent talk, go, why do we have a talking serpent? All right. Now let me, let's go through just biblical understanding. Just because it is not recorded in Scripture does not mean it did not happen. What we have in Scripture is recorded for us because that's what you need to know. Nowhere do we see Balaam being surprised that his animal talked, but I'm sure he was. All that is recorded is the conversation back and forth with them. No different than when the woman here, soon to be named Eve, I keep, she is called the woman in this part. She will get her name Eve after she bears a son. But let's just, uh, if, you get, if I say Eve, just deal with me, don't afterwards. Tim, actually in the text, she's called woman. Well, we all know her name is Eve, but I just, for my own personal frustration because I've been trying to keep her as her name is at the moment because there's significance to how she gets named. But anyway, the woman here does not say, hey, a talking serpent, what's up with that? 
We don't have that recorded for us. But that doesn't mean she didn't do that. That just means she didn't get it recorded in Scripture. No different than that John, at the end of his gospel, literally says, if we wrote down everything Jesus would do, there was no book that could contain these things. Okay, so we don't need to get stressed out that someone says, well, Eve does not act surprised, all right? We don't have a, nar- a full, complete narrative. What we have here is what has been recorded to us by God to Moses to write down for us. So don't allow those things to get to unwind you that she doesn't act surprised. But what we do know is she has a dialogue here with the serpent. And here's the major issue, the moment that we even have this dialogue here. There's a major problem already. As some have said, the very fact that the snake is in the garden is an indication that Adam has already failed at his ability to protect the garden. Just throwing that out there, as you will see later on, the sheer fact that this serpent that is the manifestation of Satan has even made it into the garden. What's going on there? They would already have argued that Adam has already failed in his ability to guard and protect the garden. So now the battle rages. The serpent here says to the woman, did God actually say? By the way, to help you out, if you wonder how do we respond to people that say this is a myth, just a little side note here the way the book is written. This is a narrative. Narratives are written like narratives. Narratives tell you this happened and this happened. Fairy tales are written like this, once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away. But when you have actual recorded quotes, when you have recorded dialogue back and forth with things like this, this is written as a narrative. Now, you may be on the liberal side of Christianity and not like that it's a narrative, But the text is written as a narrative. And this is why we as followers of God at CBC say that we will take the text as the text is written. If it is poetry, we will read it as poetry. If it is an historical narrative, we will read it as an historical narrative. So here at CBC, we really do believe that in time and space, in a garden that was created by God, that Satan manifested himself as a serpent and literally talked to Eve. And even him had a dialogue, and he literally caused evil and sin to fall into this world in time and space. This is not a myth. All right? This is an actual historical fact that happened. Because if you don't have an historical Adam, you don't have an historical Christ. All right? And that's a whole other ball of wax. So the major problem is Adam has already failed in his ability to protect. So what does Satan do? Notice what Satan says to the woman. The first question recorded by, in Scripture that is asked to the woman is, did God actually say? Did God really say this? This is point number two. Did God say what He really said that He said? Now, I want to make sure you're clear on this, and this is something that we need to make sure we have no shadow of doubt about this. Satan is not a creator. Satan is not a creator. Satan, and all that Satan can do is take the good things that God has made and has given to man and tempt mankind to do with them, do with those things what God has not allowed. All Satan can do is take the good things that God has given man and tempt us to do with them and to interact with them in ways that God has not allowed or not commanded us to do. He literally is a liar. He cannot do anything but lie. Because literally in John 8, 44, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, then he's telling them that they are literally of their father, the devil, and he is the father of lies. Literally, Satan is the one who is the giver of lying into this world. Another way of putting it, back in, 
in Jesus' day, um, they did not, I would call it, they didn't have trade schools. So literally, whatever your dad learned, he taught you. And that's why Jesus was a carpenter. Why? Because Joseph was a carpenter. And so Jesus is a carpenter. All right, this is how the pattern goes. And so when you would say someone, like you were of your father, and then that you would get your trait or your craftsmanship, Literally, Jesus, when he says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, the father of lies, he is not only just poking at them, he is punching them in the jaw, telling them that you are a liar, just like your father, Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And so the first attack, if, since Satan is a deceiver and the father of lies, the first attack is going to be on the truthfulness of the word of God. And the question in front of that is, did God really tell you the truth? Did he really tell you the right thing? Satan is consistent in one area in his life. He's a consistent liar. Everything else he does is to deceive. It's kind of one of those, and I won't make the lawyer joke, but how do you know when Satan is lying? Whenever his lips are moving, all right? Because that's who he is. He is a liar. And he is a liar and a deceiver. He does not speak the truth no matter what because he hates the God of truth. So what is Eve's response? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Did he really say that? Not only is he saying, did God say this? Because remember, Adam was called to teach his wife these things. So not only is Adam's credibility in line, also God's as well. Did he really say that to you? And Eve's response, notice what she says. You shall not eat the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Which is true. But what does she do there at the end of verse 3? Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve's response is to add to the commands of God or touch. God had only said, you may not eat of this tree. He did not say anything about touching it, sniffing it, looking at it, or anything else like that. But what does Eve do? She adds to the commands of God. Her mistrust in God is noticing that God's command is not even good enough because what does she think she has the ability to do? Add to the command of God. And this distrust of God is seen by her saying that not only was God not really truthful, he doesn't know what is really best because I'm going to add to the parameters that God has done. Now, theologians, because this is just fun that theologians like to do, they all like to say, this is when the fall happened. Was it when they grabbed the fruit? Was it when they took the first bite? Was it when Adam ate the fruit? Was it when they, he ate it and then swallowed the fruit? And all of the arguments that are going on, I came across one that I thought has an interesting thing. Eve's mistrust in God's character and his goodness here, and deciding that she knows better by adding to it, MacArthur said, this is when the fall happened, the rest is just the fruit of it, which I thought was kind of tongue-in-cheek. But this is what he says, that mistrusting God when she adds to the commands of God here was when the fall happened and the rest now is just a tumbling out of the consequences of that. It's interesting here too, what is the sin that is happening here? It's the sin of idolatry. Where Eve's idol is herself because what is she determining? I know what is good and evil here. I know it because I'm going to even add to the command of God because I know better. I have my own opinions on the command, and I'm even going to add to the things of God. Because she feels and desires 
the lie that Satan is trying to tempt her with, that God is holding back things from you that you should have. The lie here is that God is holding back things from Eve that she should have. Because here's the summary of this first attack. That there is something in the character of God that Satan implies that make him want to hold back things from you that you should have. Satan is trying to say there's something in the character of God that holds back the good stuff and only gives you the bad stuff, and he's really holding back the good stuff. That God is holding back from you is actually what you really need. And that God is the destroyer of your rights because if God really knew you well enough, he'd give you all the things you demand. That underneath it all, that God is really not caring, that God is really not caring about it all, and everything that God is doing is really not for your good. This is where the temptation comes in. And not only that, he builds on this. Not only is God withholding things from you that really, as Satan is trying to say, that are better for you, that he's really destroying your rights and all these other things that Satan is saying, not only that, the second attempt here or attack is found in verses 4 and 5. So the woman saw that it was good for food. Sorry, 4 here is. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The second attack is the truthfulness of the word of God. Not only is God telling you what he is saying is, what did he actually say what he said, is it actually right is the next part. Because Eve's response now, and you're going to start to see it in verse 6, we'll get to that next week, her eyes and her heart are going to draw her away from God. We see this being drawn away from God to her own. Because notice what Satan says, you will not surely die. So God does not know what is good for you. He also does not even understand judgment. God does not tell you the truth about what is good, and God does not even tell you the truth about judgment. Here's what Satan is saying in so many ways. It's your life. Live the way you want. No boundaries, no rules, no limits, no consequences. Do what you want to do. There is no boundary, there isn't. You are the one that determines what is good for you. You are the one who determines the judgment of you. God, not God, but you. What is God? God is law and God is restrictive. What is Satan? Satan is love and freedom. Satan knows what is good for you. God does not. He's withholding. This is the lie that is in front of us. God does not want you to be like him is the lie. So now we're going to see point number three here. We're going to see the trap that is set up. What is that trap? There's a trap that is being set. The trap is the assumption that what God has said is now subject to human judgment. Because notice what he's saying to Eve. Here's what God has said. Here's what I think. Eve, you idolatrous at heart woman who think you are God, Determine if what God has said and what God has said as judgment is actually right. You, mere created being, now are going to determine what is right and what is wrong. This is literally at the heart of where we are in society, self-autonomy. You are the final say of it all. You are the final and ultimate authority. So how does he set this up? The setup is the belief that you can be a rival God. 
Because you will be just like God, Satan says. That's the bait. So the trap is that you have the final authority. The bait is God-likeness. The crazy part about all of this, way back in Genesis, though, what do we know? And this is part of the lie. Remember, in order to really be a trap, it's got to be a little bit of the truth with just coded and lie. What's the truth? We already looked at this in Genesis 1, that mankind is already created in the image of God. There are already image bearers of God. And what is the lie? You will be like him. Not only we reflect his image, you will be very much like him. And Eve could say, we already reflect his image. And we do this differently than what you're trying to say here, Satan. But no, she buys the lie. The trap is set with the idea that you can remove God from his throne, become the new God of creation. That you can strip God off his throne and become the new God of creation, which is you, mankind. This is the bait that has been set. This is a trap that has been set. All you have to do is reach out and take a hold and eat. And the trap is right in front of us. Are we going to do this or are we not? Eve is standing here and what is bouncing around in her head is God's commandments really good? Are they really true? Does he really have what is best in mind for me? Or am I the final authority? This is the temptation all the time in all of our lives. Do we really believe what God has to say is good? There was a part of the line that we sang there that He knows what is best for us long before we even know even what is good for us. But most of the time we sit here and go, no, what? I know better. This is at the root of all of our sin. The root of all of our sin is idolatry. That you are God and you have the final say. And so what happens, we come to Scripture with that. And we start reading Scripture the lens that I'm the one that makes the final decision. I determine if this text is true or not. I will never forget, many years ago, I was in a counseling situation with an individual, and I was, we were talking about this, this, the topic of some of the sins that the individual was struggling with, and I said, well, literally the Word of God says that what you're doing is wrong, and he had the audacity to look at me and says, well, I don't believe those parts. I'm like, well, what parts do you believe? He's like, well, not that one. And I'm like, well, if you're not going to believe that one, how about all the other ones? And I, I was trying to poke at him, the saying is, the Bible literally is an all-or-nothing thing. But what is happening in our world, either you, it's all from God or it's not. But now you have preachers and all sorts of stuff, some down in Georgia especially right now, that are trying to say we can take the Old Testament and rip it apart from the New Testament because the New Testament is a much more calm God. And the Old Testament is a guy that seems like some grumpy old guy, but they have never even read the Bible because actually the New Testament has far more to say about hell and damnation than the Old Testament actually ever does. And God, even when he introduces himself in the Old Testament, talks about how loving and kind that he actually is. But it's funny how, before you know, we like to rip apart stuff because here's what we don't like. We don't like to hear that God is the final authority. Because Satan's saying, did God really say that? I mean, think about the conversation we had last week about roles of men and women. Did God really say that? Did it really mean for like you and I to play that out? And the answer would be like, yes, he really said that. And yes, we are going to be held accountable for what God has said. We don't have the luxury to go, well, I don't know. I mean, that was just so long ago or whatever. But that's how liberal thinking in the, in the theological world starts to sink in. We start to ask the question, did God really say that? 
Did he really become born of a virgin? Did he really die on the cross? Did he really rise from the dead? Or is it just a figment of their imagination? Did he really? And then we could start doing all these things. And the only answer to that is, yes, God said. He really did say it. And he really meant for us to obey it. This was not a suggestion. This was literally a command of God. You can eat of all of the trees. There is no restriction here. There is only what God is saying is good for you. All these trees, don't eat from this one. What does Satan do? I don't think your father is really good. I don't think he really knows what is best for you. Listen to me. For those of you who have ever battled any of the addicting sins that are in this world, you know the draw in of this is going to be what is good for you. And all of a sudden when you dive into it, you find at the bottom of it, it is the most putrid, horrible thing at all. But you have no way of getting out because you have no answer to it other than saying, God said my way is good. All Satan has is capture, to capture you and to keep you in. Before we close here, I just want to give you an example of things that I, I've just watched. The entrapment that Satan uses is very similar. If you've ever had an opportunity to trap any animals, especially if you do a live trap, you put a little bit of bait in there, and the animal, because they're desired to go get that bait, especially raccoons, I mean, they, are, they can be a nuisance, but they're not the swiftest tools in the shed at times. You put in a little tiny marshmallow, and they will go all the way in, and they grab, they go in there to get that marshmallow, and the trap closes, and guess what is not eaten anymore? The marshmallow, because guess what they're trying to do now? Get out, and the thing that lured them in there, they found out it was a trap. This is what Satan does. Remember, he has no new game. He is not playing a new game right now that he hasn't been playing of old, but we fall for it time after time after time, all right? I don't know who said the, the whole idea of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. But yet we do that as believers over and over and over again. We walk right into temptation and we wonder, I can't believe it happened to me. And I'm going, I can't believe it happened sooner. All right, like, I can believe it happened to you. Because Satan's tricks have been the same from the garden all the way till now, where he causes you to say God's way is not good, God is restrictive, God is boring, God only has what is out to get you, and Satan is the guy that's got love, freedom, joy, and all these other things, but is the complete opposite around. Satan is the, is the deceiver, and he bounds you. God is where freedom is found. So the question in front of us is this, do we really trust him? Because at the end of the day, Eve is standing there, and the serpent is saying, is God really worth trusting? And the only answer is yes, and here's a stick on the head to bonk you on the head, because I'm not going to distrust my Savior. But the question in front of us is, do we really trust His Word? Do we trust what it says about creation? Do we trust what it says about sin and evil? Do we trust what it says about salvation? And do you actually trust Him in your own life? Do you actually trust Him? is the question in each one of our lives, because what we love to do is add to it. We love to do is to take things that God had said and say, you really don't know what is best. Or as I've heard a preacher once say, do we really believe that everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish what he has decreed in your life? Do we really believe that? Because Eve is challenged by that statement right there. You should have all memorized it. I'm sure you all wrote that down at the end. But that statement there, I've found as I've studied the book of Genesis, it just keeps going over and over and over again. 
Did God really have what is best for Adam and Eve in the garden? The answer is yes. Did they trust him? The answer is no. Who did they trust? Themselves. The sin of idolatry is what brought the downfall of it all. So the question in front of you now, and the question we're even going to sing about, and this is the question that even shows us where true salvation is found in Christ is by simply trusting him. Do we literally take him as his word? If God said it, are we going to say, I trust it? Because it is so easy to buy into the deceiver's lie that's going to say, he doesn't know what is best. And I'll give you the example where this happens, and it happens every single day in our lives with the pleasure sins. Because Satan loves to say, here is pleasure. But it's a fleeting pleasure. We've gone through this over and over. Every time we talk about sin, we always bring up what Moses had to deal with in Egypt. What was Moses' issue? He saw the fleeting pleasures of sin, and he had a waiting balance. The fleeting pleasures of sin meant nothing to be known as a follower of God. And so we see these as fleeting pleasures. But what does Psalm 1611 remind us? That at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Eve is right in front of her. Eve, right in front of Eve here are these pleasures. The pleasures of God forevermore or these lasting little fleeting moments. The pleasure of the fruit was real. And we'll look at that next week. That desire pleasure is right there. But the question is, do I really trust God? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, help us. Thank you that it is by your grace and your grace alone that we stand. That we can simply trust you and take you at your word. Help us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.